Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting, where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. I'm Don. Well, hi, Don. I'm Sam, y'all. Sam! It feels like forever, Don. Where you been? It, it has been a while. We haven't recorded for a while, but yeah. it's been busy. I've been busy. I know you have. I like follow your travels and stuff. Yeah, I've been traveling a great deal. I've been going to meetings out of town. But yesterday I had a uh, open house art show and had uh, about 250 friends drop by. These were your closest friends, Indi- right? Closest friends individually over a period of seven hours. People came by and I sold some artwork and uh, I had like, I I probably have up about um, 50 paintings around here. (laughs) You know, after all that though, I think I just would have had to go find a corner to curl up fetal position and just like totally introvert for the next 24 hours at least. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, well, of course, I was sober. Of course, when I, back when I was when I first quit drinking, I thought I'm never going to paint again. It's gonna, that's it. My creativity's over. I'm going to be sober, <sighs> but martyr that I was. I, mean, I didn't know I was being a martyr, but I was being a martyr. It's like I'm giving it up, and I know I'm going to give up my artwork because I'll never I'll never drink again, so I'll never be able to paint again, which didn't turn out to be true. But you were saying that about crowds. It is amazing how I have learned to be able to deal with that compared to when I was drinking. At the meeting I went to this morning, we were talking about um, having feelings and feeling the feelings and letting knowing that they're going to pass. So I'll have a negative feeling that might make me want to drink. Mm-hmm. But if I wait, that feeling will pass. And I remember doing that the first time that I went to a party. Lots of social anxiety. I don't know about you, but I just get social anxiety. And the way I dealt with it was yeah. by getting good and drunk. So I didn't think about it and, you know, get get the whole world spinning at top hence, speed. And Hence the reason I would drink before I went to the bar. Before <laughs> going to the bar to deal with the social anxiety. So I went to a party and I was going to have a bunch of people I didn't know. A few people I knew. And I found that what happened was I would get into a conversation with two or three people and my anxiety level would lower and I would be fine and then I'd be having a good time. And then, you know, that little conversation would end and they would walk off and I'd be standing there. The anxiety level starts (laughs) going up. And it's like, oh, I got to get something to drink. No, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. I don't need something to drink. And I would just wait a little bit and find someone else and start talking to them. My anxiety level would go down and I'd be having a good time again. And as soon as that conversation would end, it starts rising up again. And it was the first time I realized that this thing that I was drinking at, when I was drinking, I had exactly the same anxiety. Nothing was really different except instead of dealing with the anxiety and just waiting it through, I would drink. So consequently, I would end up drunk throwing up in the bushes. 
(laughs) Which is a great conversation starter. It's a great conversation. But I wasn't really what I... The point is that I thought that the alcohol was helping me with that. And really it wasn't. It was just distracting me from it. The anxiety was still there. Yeah. I had lots of those moments yesterday (laughs) with 250. (laughs) Actually, there were strangers coming through. But it was nice having 250 people tell you how beautiful your house is and, oh, your work looks beautiful and and that sort of thing. Well, <laughs> we're sitting here talking, Sam, and we oh, have a look, guest somebody here. sitting here. And Hi, somebody. I feel Hello. like we're ignoring you. Introduce yourself to the people. Uh, my name is Michelle, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Michelle. <laughs> we're happy you're with us. Thanks for joining us on the Boiled Owl Coffee Club. You're welcome. Well, Michelle, tell us about what happened to you to cause you to go to AA the first time. The very first time uh, with my drug dealer ex-boyfriend or when I came for myself? Which Mm. time do you want to know about? (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) well, short a little bit with your drug dealer okay. boyfriend, but then when you came for yourself, because I have a feeling when you came for yourself was influenced by the fact that you came before. Uh, uh, not really. In my mind, those things were very disconnected. Uh, I don't. I didn't have any memory of coming with him until I was a few years sober. I, I had completely repressed that, total denial of that memory. That never happened. But he had gotten court ordered to AA when I was 18. He was 18. And so I came to be the supportive girlfriend and had decided at that point that this was uh, clearly not a place where we belonged. It was just uh, a bunch of old white guys complaining about their lives. I felt really bad for them. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I never graced the doors of the Unity Club again for the next five years. When I came at 23... Oh, man. I have one of those reverse stories where I did most of my uh, drugs and outside issues, whatever you want to call them, earlier. Because, I mean, to be frankly honest, if you are not 21, it's easier to get drugs than Mm -hmm. it is to get alcohol. Absolutely. Uh, I could buy drugs out of the lockers at school, you know. Um, I did acid for the first time in ocean marine biology class in my junior year at school. So... That, that sounds horrible to me. It was so fun. I bet. I'm just thinking like amazing. the colors of the ocean. Videos beautiful. were awesome, weren't they? It was beautiful. <laughs> I always, I, I, I like to have a real controlled environment when I did acid, and I did a lot of acid. Yeah, I. That I don't know. That's I don't know. Biology class dissecting a frog while tripping seems uh, a little. I don't odd. think I, I wouldn't have done that. Okay, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Especially when he jumps up and starts going, Hello, my baby! Hello! <laughs> I love to sing uh-huh. about the moon and June and the spring. Yeah, that wouldn't have been good. No. <laughs> Michelle's running out of the classroom. <laughs> and a frog's chasing her with a top hat and a cane. Yes. But, but no. Uh, so, you know, I, I did most of my drugs during, during that time. A lot of acid. I really liked hallucinogens. But alcohol was always my love. I mean, I, you know, I smoked a lot of things and, you know, popped things and stuff like that. But uh, when I got to college, as we all know, drinking is the pastime of all college students. And, you know, that access became easier. 
and then I turned 21 and I could get it whenever I wanted to. So within a year of turning 21, I had quit doing drugs altogether because I could finally have what I really wanted. And that was to drink. Interesting. To, to me, nothing else felt the way that drinking felt. You know, it, it was good and it was a sufficient substitute. But if I had the choice, I, I was an alcoholic. I was a lush is in my genes. Yeah. And in that short, in that time from 21 to 23, I, I graduated from college. I, I moved out of Greensboro and I mean, I spiraled down pretty quickly, you know, tearing through relationships, completely removing myself from friendships. I was on the verge of losing my dream job. And then my 23rd birthday weekend, you know, that list of things that we all have where, you know, I'm not that bad because mm -hmm. I haven't done this and I haven't done that. In one weekend, anything that was left on that list got marked off. You know, oh, wow. uh, I woke up at, or I came to in a stranger's house without my car, without my clothes, with six other naked people uh, in the house and a new tattoo. And, awesome. you know, wow. I like, I had a, I had very little recollection of how all of that had come to be. So, uh, and how did you feel about it? I felt when you woke up. incredibly at that incomprehensible demoralization, you know, uh -huh. like how did I get here? Mm. You know, who am I? I? I went back to my apartment once I found my clothes in my car and I just curled up in the bed and cried you know, because I had no idea how my life had gotten me to this point where everything was just so empty. And that, that place where you can't look yourself in the mirror because you're so ashamed of who you are. And, uh, I, I'd been, uh, first committed when I was 13. So I was very familiar with, you know, thinking about killing myself. Mm -hmm. And I knew, uh, after, after a week had passed, I knew that I was going to kill myself. And a friend of mine came and picked me up in my pajamas that I'd been in for three days and took me to behavioral health. Mm -hmm. So you had reached out and talked to your friend or yeah. they had reached out to you. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, that was good. I was originally put in behavioral health for uh, depression and suicidal ideation. And then after I was there for a day, uh, my counselor called me in and said they were going to put me in the dual diagnosis program, which I didn't know what that meant. And now I'm a college graduate and I am an intelligent person. So I'm like, what is this dual diagnosis program? Oh, well, we think you might have a drinking problem. My words, <laughs> I don't have a drinking problem. I could stop if I wanted to. I just don't want to. I've after, never heard that. And, no. Seriously, no. novel idea. I know. <laughs> and after everything I had just felt, been through, thought about myself and knowing on some level that drinking was the reason for that, you know, and, and still that denial, man, I stayed sober for 24 days. I relapsed on, uh, two beers with a coworker working out my two week notice. She had no idea what, I'd, where I'd been, what had happened. She just, you know, said, Hey, you want to grab a beer after work? And I said, of course, it was just like it says in the book, you know, I had no defense, right? you know, and I, I didn't even think of the consequences at all. So I went and I met her, um, at a bar. I was in Raleigh. Um, we met over on NC State campus, and and I had two blue moons, and a blue, I, what's a blue moon? Blue moon beer. Mm -hmm. um, and 
we were both drinking out of these glass glass containers and I remember keeping pace. Glass containers. They weren't glass glasses. They were like they were giant thing. things. No, like they weren't. Oh, okay. I wish they had been. I hadn't <laughs> had a drink in 24 days, okay? That was a long time. And you I, deserved it. I did. <laughs> and she is drinking so slow. <laughs> but I but I can't let my drink get below her drink. You've got a rule, though. I, I have to control what I'm doing because I'd been to a few meetings and I had heard a little bit of what you guys said and I had a, I had something to prove. You know, I didn't... You don't want to be an I, alcoholic. I, I'm not an alcoholic. I can control this. You know, and then so after two beers, she's like, okay, I'm going home. And I was like, oh, we're going home, okay. You know, but by the time I got home, I'm patting myself on the back for only having two beers. Because you did was, it. And that know? was such a wonderful time. I, I, and, and it was great. You know, see, I can do this. I got, I don't have a problem, you know. <laughs> let, let alone, because that's, I did that. And eventually to realize that what's the difference between, drink, the all I thought about was drinking the whole time. The whole time. I mean, you're yeah. like controlling it. I, I did that with at a party. I had a friend over, and I was like, "Not going to be an alcoholic." In fact, I said I was going to not. I'm not going to have a, anything to drink. I'm going to have only have two beers. Um, I'm not going to have anything to drink. I'm only going to have two beers. beers. <laughs> I'm a, You're yeah. still an alcoholic, dog. <laughs> I'm only going to have two beers. Doesn't count. I'm only going to have two beers. So I didn't want to start too early because I'm only going to have two beers, and we're hanging out, and then uh, and this other guy's drinking, but and then, and then finally he said, "Well, I think I got to go," and I was going. I haven't had my I haven't had my first beer yet. <laughs> you can't go yet. Just hang around a minute. So I don't know. It's, it's insane what it goes is. through our minds trying it to is. control it. Yes. And all and all I thought about I didn't have a good time. All I thought about was not drinking. Yeah. Which might indicate a problem. problem. Too. Hey, I still so clearly remember this one time that I let myself have one drink. Mm. And the situation was such that the weight of it was enough that I would only have the one drink. And in doing that, I was pissed off. I just, it was like, I'd rather I had not done any. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was this whole situation of uh, going to, to, picking my grandmother up 30 minutes away from here and taking her, bringing her back here to go out to eat with the family. And we're standing waiting for the table and everybody gets, well, she doesn't get a drink, but everybody gets a drink. And I'm like, all right, I'll have a margarita. And I was just an angry little toad on a log for the rest of that dinner because I knew I needed to drive her home. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it just hard. pissed yeah. me off. Yep, yeah, that's alcoholism. It <laughs> is. So anyway, so after after that experience, I I had one of those those, you know, out-of-body God moment experiences where I had two days later, I decided I was going to go get drunk because, you know, what the hell is two beers? That is absolutely nothing. And the guy, you know, the guy who's my boyfriend and then my fiance, and then I had broken up with him because he was the problem and not me. And then, but we were still sleeping together, you know, our alcoholic relationships. So I'm crashing at his place and he says, you know, he's a big guy. And uh, he stands in the doorway and says, you know, I'll take you to those one of those meetings and I'll call that sponsor person that I had in name only. You had talked to but, him about that. Yeah, I would told him all about that. And uh, he said, but I'm not going to let you leave. I'm not I'm not going to wow. let you go get any alcohol. And and I proceeded to um, kick at him and spit at him and curse him and hit him. 
And then just for one of those moments, you know, it was like I was looking down and watching myself and, and just that voice said, look at what you're doing, you know, for a drink. This is what you've become for a drink. A moment of clarity. And man, and, you know, we're so dramatic. I've, I crumple onto the floor. <laughs> well, I'm it feels like, but, yeah, but you crumpled you know? elegantly, right? Because, oh, I mean, you have to be dramatic and perfect. And... You know, <laughs> uh, I swooned. And, uh, <laughs> um, but that's a horrible thing it, to realize. It, I mean, it hurt, man. Yeah. It was painful. Uh, it's like someone died. And, um, someone well, did, yeah. die. did die. Yeah. Abs- yeah, but you don't know that. And no. and you don't know anything about the promise of being reborn yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're dying with nothing to look forward to because at that point I didn't have hope. You know, I had I may have gone to a couple of meetings and I may have gotten a sponsor in name, but I wasn't actually working a program. So I, I had no hope of my life ever getting better. I was just going to be miserable not drinking for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm never going to paint yeah. again. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's terrible. It's such a bad place to be. I'm going to get sober, but... But it's going to suck. It's going to suck, and all joy is gone from the world. Yeah. I still love the way a friend puts it. He called it a consolation life. But, mm. You know, you don't get to have the, the prize. You just get the consolation yeah, gift. Yeah, true. And that's what I thought I was going to have, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you... So you went to AA. So I went the, the very next morning. I met my sponsor uh, at a meeting. I picked up a starter chip. Uh, that was February 16th. And it had been five years? Uh, since the very first time with the... First time. From, since uh, uh, the first time with the drug dealer ex-boyfriend. Oh, okay. So, so how long had it been since you had... Because you had a sponsor you, that you I called. had a sponsor. Um, you know, I had been at behavioral health for two weeks. Uh, the day that I got out, I went to uh, Young People's that night and, and met my friend in the kilt with a blue mohawk. Um, I, so I guess I'd been coming for 10 days. I had asked for someone to be my sponsor, not even having any idea what that meant. I certainly was not doing anything with her. Going through um, the motions. Yeah, just going through the motions. Not, well, not you weren't convinced you were an alcoholic. No, no, I wasn't. I, so that was if like anything, two weeks. I wanted to prove I wasn't. Uh, so yeah, so, that was about two weeks. Two weeks, and so. then you and then you swooned. And in, then I swooned in exquisite agony. Uh, yes. Ooh. <laughs> uh huh. Good words. <laughs> so and yeah, and then the next morning I picked up my start over chip. So. And that was when February sixteenth, two thousand one. Sweet. So sixteen years. Fantastic. Well, it's amazing what it takes to get here, but I don't know. Just breaking through that denial mm-hmm. is, it's painful. Mm-hmm. So what, give us an epiphany. One of the first things that happened to you when you're working, the, when I was working the steps, uh, I had a couple of things that are like pivotal where things changed for me. I had one making amends. I had one, I uh, had a spiritual experience at, at one point praying the first time and uh, some conversations with my sponsor. So what's what's something that happened to you early in recovery when you first started working the program that was going, oh my, this is amazing. I'm understanding what's happening here. The biggest thing 
steps two and three were hands down the hardest for me. I had been raised Pentecostal, raised in the church. I'm talking concerts, tent revivals, um, Winterfest, this, you know, big thing that we went to, Mm -hmm. uh, in the winter. When I was small, I was given a very specific God. Mm -hmm. This is what God is. This is what God looks like. There were no other options. In my interpretation of what that God was, uh, that was, if you're not perfect, you're going to hell. And I had lots of childhood experiences, trauma, uh, things like that, that made me very much believe that I was not perfect. And so at a very young age, I felt doomed, basically, and eventually, you know, turned that into fuel for drinking and drugging and stuff and uh, came to the logical conclusion that um, there was no way that God loved me and that he would ever have a relationship with me. So when we got to step two and it said God could restore us to to sanity, Mm -hmm. I was convinced that that could meant if he felt like it, if he was in a good mood, if he was feeling generous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, conditional Um, on on God's part. Yes, absolutely conditional. And that, um, I in no way merited that. Mm -hmm. I remember being at my first women's retreat. I had maybe three months and I was there with my sponsor my grand sponsor, my great grand sponsor and, you know, and all of these other women in recovery. And it was amazing. By the end of the retreat, I just had this huge in your heart, in your gut epiphany that that could was conditional on me, that God always loved me and that I was the only one not letting him love me. And that was, I I literally ran around to everyone the rest of the day saying, did you know God loves me? (laughs) God loves me. Did you know that is amazing? God loves me. It doesn't matter what I did. It doesn't matter any of the mistakes that I made, any, any of the things that happened to me, any of the things that I did to other people, you know, I was the only thing preventing God from showing me his love. How did you, how did you get to that point? Oh God, I don't know. Um, it was at a retreat. It was at a retreat. I mean, I couldn't tell you what any of our workshops or anything was about, you know, something happened inside. Yeah. But what I'm hearing that I love is that you, you moved from a, a fear based understanding of spirituality to a love based understanding. And Mm -hmm. that was that change wholesale is what enabled you to continue doing and being where you are today. Yeah. Yes. That there's nothing I can do to make God not love me because we continue to make mistakes well into sobriety. Ah, What's this weird thing? Maybe you too. (laughs) Not me. I mean, hey. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're a spiritual giant, a spiritual Mm. gas giant. Hey, wait a minute. That's my line. (laughs) I think that there's a, a place where I just allowed I changed my mind about the way that I thought about God, Mm. which was a long, tedious process. 
I'm so glad you went through that because you're going through that made it a lot easier for me to go through it pretty quickly. Yeah, it's that <laughs> that long, tedious beating. And at one point going to meetings, and I don't know exactly when it was, but I was going, I can just think about this differently. Well, I know one thing my sponsor told me when I was working the fourth step and fifth step. And before I started writing, I was going, now I've already done a lot of writing about spirituality, which maybe you should read. I had a thing called My Own Bible, and I had done, it was based on readings I had done in Eastern philosophy, and but and basically what it was really came down to, I am God. Uh -huh. I was going to say ego. <laughs> yeah, it, came, a, to it ego. came down to ego. My own Bible. Uh, <laughs> maybe there's a touch Please of ego. Please tell me that thing still exists somewhere around here. It's really cool. There's some good writings in it. But I, I gave it to my sponsor, and he said, well, you know what? I read that, and you know what I think you should do? It's like, this is really good work. And you should set this aside for three months and just put that on the back burner. And then let's just focus on what AA is saying to do and see how that works and then compare and form together. I was going, that sounds like a good idea. That's good sponsorship. <laughs> oh, man. Jedi mind tricks. They're <laughs> awesome. And, of course, at the end of three, three months, I had had a spiritual experience which is where i really get the idea that what happens in aa is aa doesn't care what your conception of your higher power is as long as you give it a try because aa is confident that if you do you're going to have an experience of something greater than yourself that's real that's going to be of assistance to you and help you get sober yes and if you really surrender to it it will work. It's about 100%. If you don't want to get sober, it's about 100% chance it's not going to work. Amen. Absolutely. <laughs> it, 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 I love it. It comes back to that thing I heard in um, uh, early sponsorship when I, I started sponsoring and, and, and worried about, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to break them. I'm going to make them you know, ruin it. Mm -hmm. You know, if they want to get sober, there's not a thing that I can say wrong. Mm -hmm. And if they don't want to get sober, there's not a thing I can say right. That's right. So... It sounds to me like what happened to you, Ms. Jill, is that you just decided, you know what? I'm changing my idea about God. God loves me. It's okay for God to love me. I'm going to allow that. Is that what happened to you? Or, to, or was it, or is this more experiential and you were like, you know? I think it was a little of both. I think experiential wise, it was just being around enough people who like, sharing their experience, strength and hope. I mean, there was so much that, that had such a profound impact on me seeing other people talking about God in ways that were foreign to me. Mm. So in, in some way, I think I was kind of assimilating all of this stuff in the background, but not aware that I was doing it. I was just kind of soaking it all in. And then I don't know. I think at the retreat, I have, where I'm at in sobriety right now, we are, I was talking to somebody saying, you know, we're getting down to these layers of the onion that I didn't even know were there. And she said, no, this is like a separate onion you didn't know existed. Oh, you know? yeah. That's great. Yeah. This is a new onion. Uh, new onion. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> um, 
And, and it, it's actually, you know, to me, it relates, all relates back to, to this and this kind of first understanding that my entire life hinged on this belief of me not being good enough in everything, to everyone, to myself, to God, certainly not being good enough. And, and I don't know what magic AA did. I just know that at some point during that retreat, I realized I didn't have to be good enough. I was already good enough that there, there was nothing more I needed to do, be, say, nothing that, that, that wasn't even a thing to God, you know, that me just being here and wanting a relationship was enough that that was all I had to do. That was, again, that was such a foreign thing for me after chronically feeling my entire life that I was always less than and to be enough was so freeing, you know, it was amazing. Changed my life. And it is a core thing. It is. So so that also, that, that happened to you there, but that's also the other onion. That is the other onion. (laughs) Oh my God. So much. That, that happened. I went to a, I went to a therapist. I had a stroke last year Mm. and in recovering from the stroke, I went to a therapist and I was talking to her. And when I would talk about anytime I would talk about people that helped me when I was sick and when I was in the hospital, people came and brought me food. And I mean, I was incredible outpouring of love Mm. from people from all over towards me. And anytime I would mention it, I'd tear up. Mm-hmm. I was there to talk about the stroke and getting over it and de- and getting on with life. And she said, why is it every time you mention anybody offering you support or love, you, you tear up? I don't want to talk about <laughs> this. Because <laughs> I don't deserve it. I'm not good because enough. Because she's, and I was going, I, I don't know. I could not answer that question. She said, do you think it's because you don't deserve to be loved? And it's like, God, I did that over the floodgates. <laughs> Wish y'all could have seen him on like, backhand me, folks. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> don't pull out another onion. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to make me cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to make me cry. All the time. <laughs> And sure enough, there it is. It, it, and it comes down to, and so I've spent some time, this is, you know, 20 years of recovery back to the very fundamental in the morning of giving to God that I am who I am, show me what to do, help me be helpful in the world, and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm lovable. I, I can't and gosh say, darn it, I people like me. And gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> See, I can't even say it because it's, it's such a cliche. She was actually saying, I yeah. want you to say in the morning, I hate this. Donnie. Mm. Loving your inner child. Yes, she wants to do it. And so I did it. Donnie, you are loved. I love you. And I had to say that in the morning. But I did for two weeks. And, but you know, it's like, I totally get that. Why is it hard to do that? I'm not going to say that. Why? Because I don't feel like I deserve it. 
Because I'm Southern, we don't do stuff we like don't that. Do stuff like that. My dad we was don't a take WW2 well. guy, <laughs> and he didn't hug, and he didn't give encouragement. He gave constructive criticism. <laughs> well, the the place I found myself recently, I've had a lot of these uh, epiphanies, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it doesn't end, right? It, our literature tells us the spiritual experience. You don't just have one and it stops and you're done and, you know, here's your AA certificate. It just keeps going, assuming you continue doing the work and using the tools and, and things like that. And being and, willing, yeah. Yeah. Be, I became a parent a, around 10 years, did not anticipate the effect that that would have on me watching <clears throat> the very different childhood that my children are having. <clears throat> That's a beautiful thing. And realizing that, gosh, my childhood was nothing like that. And, you know, when you grow up knowing that things that happened to you affected you, certainly, but you don't know what you're missing. You know, you don't know what it's like to not be abused. That's the only thing that's normal. But then when you see your child so free you know, and realize that at five, that was taken away from you and completely altered you forever. And to see what I missed in her, God, man, it totally jacked me up. And uh, so I started doing a lot of inventory and, you know, reflecting and things on Realizing where I could draw a line between this thing that I learned to believe in my childhood and then draw a straight line directly to how I still behaved 15 years sober. You know, the, the fear, the not good enoughs, the, the relationships, the treatment that I thought was acceptable, you know, from certain people, you know. And that I still had a lot of work. I still had a whole other onion that I needed to work on. And uh, so I started going to a a sister program. I started going to adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, I mean, I I have yet to go to an ACA meeting and not cry through most of the meeting. Just because it's hitting on things that, you you know, our, our book, the big book says... We have to get down to causes and conditions mm-hmm. and, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous get, has given me all of the tools that, that I can to do all of those things and to stay sober doing it. What ACA has done has asked me a different set of questions. You know, I still use the same tools, <clears throat> but it's, it's given me a limited permission to inventory my family, not with the intent of judgment or victimhood, or, you know, look what you did to me, but more of, I, I am the natural result of generations of dysfunction in my family. That wasn't personal to me. And it certainly wasn't because I wasn't good enough the way that I was, you know, my parents, their parents, their parents could not have been any other way than they were, which led to me, you know, and of course I'm going to be influenced by that. 
there's no way I can't, but I don't have to buy into it anymore. And that's terrifying. It's so terrifying. This, this stuff is where I have really understood that line. Then I'm going to be the hole in the donut. You know, I did, I, for so long, I didn't understand that line, you know, but what it has meant for me is that, you know, if I take all of this stuff that I've believed since I was a kid and take it away, what am I? Yes. What am I? Yeah. And what do I replace that with? You know, it's thrilling and terrifying all at the same time. I, I can tell just the, by the way you're talking about it. I mean, it's, it's really present. Mm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that continues to, to hit me and, and it's as I discover these things uh, through, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it, inventory work mm-hmm. um, in particular. And that is uh, a way that a, another program, not a recovery program, um, mentioned it, hit me upside the head with it many years ago. And that was, Sam, you made a decision when you were four or five, six years old that is still driving how you're behaving today. Mm. When I learned that thing, I was about, we'll say 30 years old. Mm. Sam, what 30-year-old do you know who's going to let a five-year-old make decisions for their life? Seriously. <laughs> that's what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. it just, that's, that was said the way I needed to hear mm-hmm. it, to yeah. get it. Mm-hmm. The thing about inventory, that kind of inventory, is the, is the willingness to look at places that are uncomfortable. But after having done, you know, inventories, we've been talking about peeling the onion. And after doing four or five inventories, I know when I do an inventory, if I'm willing to really dive in there and take a look at my behavior, I can learn something about myself that I, I can let go of something that's not working, that feels like it's right. Mm -hmm. It feels real comfortable. It feels like it should be the way I feel. But if I let go of it, I'll be better. And I'll be able to deal with it. This is where the the feeling comes, like when you're talking with an old timer and they're like responding. I think think Mariah or one of our previous guests were saying, talking to to an old timer with with all that serenity about no, it's like they don't give a damn about anything. And they're just like, you need to let go. But that's where it comes from. They're so zen. They're so zen. But it comes comes from looking again and again, from peeling the onion and getting deeper and deeper. And I'm, I want to let, I want to let go of the things that don't work Mm -hmm. and discovering those and discover those things by doing those inventories. So I just did one, a, a spot check inventory, if you will, with my sponsor um, earlier this week. I am uh, working with a new sponsor, and uh, we were approaching the fourth step, but something was going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we started talking about it, and it's like, oh, let's go ahead and do this, the inventory on this. Pulled out the paper and did the columns. When I got to what's my part in this, what my part in it is without divulging, you know, without doing a fifth step here on, on, oh, on the podcast, um, is an expectation that someone who has been this way all my life shouldn't change. Mm. 
and become another way. And they are. That's okay for us to do. Yes, totally. <laughs> no one else is allowed to do that. But no change. No, no, you need to stay what I've known. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was not aware that that's what I was doing. That's where I was operating from. Mm-hmm. And without sitting down and doing that inventory work and talking with him about it, that clarity would not be there that that's why this hurts so much. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm pissed off. Inventory is such a great tool. Yeah. And then, and I love this, uh, followed with the remaining steps. Yes. And that's yeah. one of the things a, a, a good friend uh, had, had said once that, that I love. You know, I, I did... These inventories. I would do an inventory and do a fifth step with my sponsor. And and then, you know, months later, I'd do an inventory because some something like it would come up again. I'd do an inventory and do a fifth step with my sponsor. And then I'd do an inventory and a fifth step with my sponsor. And, and it just kept on happening. And it's like, then I did an inventory and a fifth step with my sponsor and a sixth step and a seventh step mm-hmm. and an eighth step and a ninth step on it. And then it stopped happening. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we, we have to do the stuff after the fifth step for there to be some some relief from some change. Yes, because that's where the change actually happens. Talking about it is great. That's where you identify what needs to be changed, but it doesn't actually change anything. Right. That's the difference between therapy and AA, in my opinion. Ooh, yeah. Is because I was in therapy for a couple of years before I got sober and I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about how I operate, but nothing changed. It didn't touch my drinking at all as much as I wanted it to. But in AA, I had to do the inventory and then I don't change myself. I've got to give it to my higher power and allow my higher power to change me if it should happen. And being willing and open to do that is what I really thought I thought was com- complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. But it has happened to me. So I completely believe it to be real because it happened. I, I asked my higher power for help changing my behavior and situations. And, you know, I don't know how much my wife would say I've changed, but <laughs> there, but there, <laughs> there is change. There is change. She would say there's change. Well, I think, I think what's important too, though, is to, to follow that up with, you know, we have to be willing and we have to be open to allowing our higher power to, to change us, but we also have to act like we're different. Oh, yes. You know, I, I know I have talked to some people who have adamantly held, held to the belief that their higher power does all the work. They don't actually have to do anything. And I feel like that is a misrepresentation of those steps. You know, we actually have to try to act different. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, we've got a part, a big part in that. Yeah. Yes. It, it is a joint effort. You know, yeah. God kind of, God gives us the encouragement or he opens a door or, or the awareness, or, or the awareness, you know, what, whatever it is, but we have to actually do it. Yeah. You know, we can't I mean, get, we, we don't change if we keep doing the same shit. Uh, it's that proverb that I love so much that I think it's a Russian proverb, but uh, pray to God, but row for sure. Yes. Yeah, I've got some work to do. Or I want to win the lottery. Well, then buy a damn lottery ticket. Right. right. 
It's not going to fall out of the sky. Exactly. Yeah, we, we have a part. Boy, I struggled with that. I remember talking to a guy in AA that I really respect, and I was talking Hold to him on. about That's the... so sweet of you to talk to me about <laughs> Sad. <laughs> and I said, I, th- I don't think that God changes my behavior. I think I have to change my behavior. God only makes me aware. And he said, well, I don't know if God's going to change your behavior or not change your behavior. But why do you feel like you need to limit what God can do? And it was a really good question for me because I have always limited what God can do. It's my natural questioning of it even being real. And when I'm open to it completely, it really does me good to be completely open and just say, okay, I'm allowed that God can totally change me completely. But I still do believe that what tends to happen is I will have the awareness that's coming from God and it's up to me to make the change Mm -hmm. and to act differently, as you said, Michelle. Because like I remember one of the first times when I was incredibly angry at my crew that I was painting. It was a newly sober, the first year of sobriety. And I walked in the room and they had like done, piled up all these oily rags in a way that they could burst into flames. And we had talked about this before. And I was like, so angry. Like, <laughs> you're going to burn this place down and my insurance is going to have to pay for it. And it's going to ruin my life. And, and I went, you're angry. I need to do, I need to go outside and pray, mm. which was totally weird. So I said, <laughs> could you take Who these rags and spread them out so they're not in a pile? And I'll be back. And I went outside, went to, I was working in an industrial section of town, went down to a railroad track and sat there, asked God to direct my thinking, take away my hair. I went up and described the whole situation calmly, the reason that we don't pile rags up that way. I acted differently, but it was like the wildest thing to have all that anger and decide, oh, I don't need to act on it. I can do something different. That's crazy. It is yeah. crazy. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I think that a, a part of it too is that once I've identified this thing as this is a way that I behave, and then an instance of it presents, and I become aware that, oh, well, here's an instance of this, then there's discomfort present yes. that helps me choose to change how I'm behaving too. Because prior, the discomfort may have been there, but I was not aware of why I was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But right. now I have the awareness and the discomfort. And, you know, recovery has turned me into an absolute wuss. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot sit in the pain that I used to sit in before recovery. I can't take that crap. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to deal with it. Uh, we will comprehend the word serenity. We will know peace. I understand what serenity feels like, and I really understand when I'm not in it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like being in it. I like I just, it much more than being angry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although anger used to be a drug. Yeah. Anger was power. And, well, and, and it still is. Well, but, yeah. but I I don't like it. But the hangover sucks. Yeah. <laughs> anger, hangover. Well, and you have the awareness, too, I think, with anger now that you know what it's covering up. Fear. You know, yeah, always. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't be angry for long now and not know 
not start having that conversation in the back of my mind, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid is going to happen? Because you wouldn't be this angry if you weren't afraid. Yeah. And I can't ignore it anymore. You know, that, and those are the kind of results we get from staying sober long enough. Yeah, you know, that's right. You, you can't just pretend it's not there anymore. And that's where you get this amazing serenity mm. and grace that flows from you at all times. Shit. <laughs> Cue the heavenly music. <laughs> that sounds more like Star Trek. <laughs> Wait, do you hear that? I don't hear anything. Wait, is that silent death coming from above? <laughs> that is the sound of the owl flying to deliver a question for the old timer. <laughs> it's time for our old timers questions. <laughs> you, have, you have great sound effects. That owl, will you please quit circling around? Flapping your wings. I'm trying to read something here. <laughs> hey, who are you calling an old timer? <laughs> you. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, Sonny. Don't call me Sonny. Sonny. <laughs> how I love you. How I love you. <laughs> Sammy. <laughs> If you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. Today, we have a question from Marla in Middle Earth. Marla. Marla Muggle. Mar is it, we don't use last names oh, here. Sorry. You just broke her anonymity. <laughs> Marla, not Muggle, asks, Isn't AA for old white guys who drink out of paper bags under bridges? What say you, old-timer? <laughs> old white guy who might have drank out of a paper bag at some point? Under bridges. <laughs> I used to pretend like I was an alcoholic when I was drinking. I drank a lot of Orange Driver, which is uh, fortified wine. Uh, MD-2020, Mogan oh, yeah. David, uh, Thunderbird. The, the... Screwtop wine. Yeah. Wino <laughs> wine. <laughs> Not Boone's Farm. Because Boone's Farm doesn't have enough alcohol. This this stuff will blow the top of your head off, which is what I was after. So I would drink it in a brown paper bag, hang out under a bridge. Did you really? On the railroad tracks outside of my apartments, <laughs> pretending like I'm an alcoholic. No, you weren't pretending, Don. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? That's amazing. Because that way... I wouldn't be an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm choosing this. <laughs> I am. I was. It was romance, you know, the romance of the dissolution. But it, it's it's bizarre. It was bizarre behavior. <laughs> That's what I thought AA was before I came to AA. Was was people that hung out under bridges drinking wine, and the people would be sitting around table shaking. Mm -hmm. unshaven, in their raincoats. I don't know where they're all wearing raincoats, but they're wearing raincoats. Dirty, smelly raincoats. <laughs> Dirty, smelly. Because they're all flashers. They're all flashers. <laughs> and they're Moral sitting there detective. going, <laughs> I think I'm going to drink. I think I'm going to drink. No, don't do it. Don't drink. And it didn't turn out to be that way. Yeah, not so much. But what it actually was, was people who were healthy, 
and happy, laughing, enjoying their lives, light in their eyes. I, I thought that the people in AA were bizarre because I, they were all like glowing with health. In fact, I was kind of unshaven and my hair was a little dirty, perhaps. Trench coat? Shaking a little bit. No trench coat. I'm no alcoholic. <laughs> but but I was sick. And they were well. And it was it was beautiful. It was entirely different than what I thought it was. It was attractive. It was attractive. And there were people of all ages. And sometimes I go to a meeting where everybody was older. And then go to another meeting where there would be different people in it. But it's full of people who are living their lives in a successful way, which I wasn't. So all of my judgment, my prejudgment, was just a way to make myself feel better, I think. Feel superior. All my yeah, judgment is to make is to feel superior. I used to sit in a car and feel superior to the people coming out of churches. Uh, they're weak-minded cow brains. <laughs> <laughs> I love when you tell that. <laughs> it's uh, I would have been I, I, I and I, I relate to that because that's where I was too. Yes, I, I was that judgmental person too, always assuming that actually finding attractive. I remember this one woman that I worked with many many years ago who saw two jet contrails um, intersect in the sky, and it looked like a cross. I mean, it made a cross, mm -hmm. and she was so taken by it. It's a sign and, and this, that, and the other. And and I remember sitting there and, and I don't remember if I was in early recovery at that point or still, you know, it was miserable, I think, regardless. And wishing that I could just be that simple. And I just couldn't do it. What say you, guest, to our, our Marla from Middle Earth? I definitely had the same misconception that A was for old white guys, homeless white guys in trench coats, mm -hmm. totally in trench coats. <laughs> um, what kind of broke me of that was uh, the first speaker meeting I went to was Charlie B. And uh, now at the time he had five years, which was forever, mm. you know, way longer than I thought I was going to hang around. And it was fascinating because he was very successful uh, mortgage broker, crackhead, you know, completely different from where I was coming from, you know, doing different things. But what he shared in his story was how all of that made him feel. And all of the feeling words that he used, I could completely identify with. You know, it didn't matter how much money he was making. It didn't matter what drugs he was doing. It didn't matter, you know, what consequences his were and how different they were from mine. You know, we both ended up in the same place, you know, uh, completely spiritually bankrupt yeah. on the inside. Right. And that was, I mean, that was very, it was my first 30 days, you know. So that really planted the seed of, you know, it doesn't matter what these people look like on the outside. They are experiencing the same thing that you have felt on the inside. And that was really profound for mm -hmm. me. So. I get that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that, that you brought up a speaker meeting because mm -hmm. that 
in my early recovery, I went to lots of speaker meetings. Speaker meetings were a great place for me to get the whole story. Whereas in discussion meetings, it could just turn out to be a sick meeting and everyone's mm-hmm. focused on the problem. Mm-hmm. In a speaker meeting, I was almost guaranteed that I'm going to hear a problem. Well, you know, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. What it's like now being attractive. Yeah. What it was like being, wait a minute, I relate to that. Mm-hmm. What happened? Oh, so this is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really helped me identify with with a number of different kinds of people mm-hmm. throughout that early recovery. One of the other things, though, for me was being a gay man, I went to gay AA first. Mm-hmm. I, and I really needed that. Actually, I did not go there first. I went there Second, because the first meeting I went to was at Unity Club, happy hour, and it scared the shit out of me. (laughs) And because, I mean, I was coming in a a, a scared gay man, you know, afraid that I'm going to get beaten down by somebody and just for looking the wrong way. And so uh, then I went to gay AA meetings. And what happened for me is I got to see people in there who were like me in that respect who were also alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And I got to hear the alcoholism part of it and not worry about the gay part of it. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to go to the mainstream meetings. Mm -hmm. And in going to mainstream meetings, then I found that I heard other people's alcoholism and I saw that what we all had in common. A few years into recovery, just to talk about specifically, you know, old white guys drinking from bags under bridges, I got to travel the world for four years. I went to an AA meeting in every location I traveled to. 26 different countries, many of them several times. Oh, fine. Yes. And I got to go to AA in all of these. And we are virtually everywhere. The only place that I did not get to a meeting was actually in in Hawaii. And that was because the meeting was a $45 cab ride away. And there was a chance of rain, good chance of rain. And if it rained, that meeting wasn't held because it was held in a park. So I called Intergroup instead. But but it was just one of those things everywhere around the world and meetings that I've been to here in the States as well. The same characters are there. Mm -hmm. But we're in different bodies. We look different. (laughs) We sound different. But the same characters are present. And I'm at home. Every meeting I walk into, I belong there. For you newcomers who might be listening to us, you belong. Come visit. It's okay. We don't bite. We're friendly. We like to hug. (laughs) (laughs) But we won't hug you if you don't want to be hugged? That's true. Yes. And if you're a woman, it's okay to say no. If you're a man, it's okay to say no, too. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Group hug. No! Michelle, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services.
Okay, let's go peel some onions. <laughs> 